Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show Robert Pura, who in June 2018 retired after almost 18 years as the president of Greenfield Community College. He is with us today because we want you to know about his event at the Parlor Room this Saturday at 2 o'clock, a book reading, a signing, and a discussion open to the public, sponsored by the International Language Institute here in Northampton. Bob is the co-author of a new book, The Community's College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. Robert Pura, I'm so pleased you can be with us. I must say I'm really struck by the book and how it brought back to me what I think is uh, our collective, not yours, but I think in many people's uh, overlooking of community colleges as a bulwark of our educational system, our economic system, our communities, and I'd appreciate it if you could share with us what you see as the community college's role in the community. After all, the title of your book is The Community's College. So talk to us. Uh, well, thank you very much, Bill, for having me. And please, uh, it's Bob. Uh, just because the book's out, you don't need to use Robert. Okay. It's uh, my pleasure to, to see you again. Hey, uh, Bob, let me tell you, our connection's not very good. I'm not sure why or what just happened. Um, can I you? don't. Shall I uh, give you a call? Yeah, why don't, you give, why don't you give us a call? Um, and okay. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, close your Skype link and give us a call, and I will uh, fill a minute while you're calling us, which I will do. Let me tell you about uh, uh, Bob Pura. Uh, as I mentioned, 18 years as Greenfield Community College president. Uh, it's this really interesting bio. Uh, he is a graduate of a community college. He went, he's a graduate of Miami-Dade Community College, and after he went and graduated community college with his associate's degree, he went to the University of South Florida, where he received his bachelor. He received his MS from St. Thomas University in Miami, and then his doctorate in educational admission administration from the University of Texas, Austin. And he is now a senior fellow for community college leadership at UMass Boston's College of Education and Human Development. Do we have... Bob, back on the line? Yes, we, yes. We do. Thank yes, you. Thank you again, Bill. Well, and thank please you. Please refer to me as Bob. Yeah. I am. I, 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 I swear we won't, we won't elevate you to Robert. And <laughs> just, just, just because you, have, just because you have another book out. Okay. So I, I, I had asked you, and I'd really like you to talk about this. You do in your book, and you do it in this very, very compelling way, uh, about the role of community colleges, maybe a bit of the history, because again, I think we. You know, we talk about higher education and everyone's mind goes, oh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, and, or the University of Massachusetts or the University of Michigan. And in fact, there are millions and millions of people every year at community colleges throughout the country. And they are the bulwark of, as you say in your book, uh, the pursuit of democracy, economic development and success. So tell us a bit, if you would, please, about the history and the place of community colleges in our educational system and in the broader community. Sure, and I'm glad you brought up the history because um, I think uh, learning from our history is uh, so very important. So one of the key principles uh, of our book um, is that democracy itself can never be um, realized in a, in a separate and equitable society. It, democracy is the outcome of our nation's collective commitment to provide a, um, a an excellent education for all, and education at its best, and this is where it gets formed fit to community college, education at its best does not occur behind an ivy wall separate from the realities of uh, everyday life. Uh, rather, education, we believe education must be an integrated fiber in the tapestry of community. And so the community colleges of our nation uh, which enroll about 5 million students every year, uh, provide uh, hope and opportunity uh, for students and, and the communities they serve. Uh, the work then of um, the faculty and staff of the 1,400, there's about 1,400 community colleges in the, in the country, is not only to prepare students for the workforce or to transfer, which is so significant to the work they do every day, but also, and this is key for us, their collective purpose is to prepare students for active and engaged citizenship. So they 
truly understand uh, and part of their motivation for working at a community college is they realize that the outcome of a strong education is a, a stronger democracy. Um, and, and there's some, some uh, philosophical foundations. Um, uh, we found a, um, a speech that John Dewey gave um, in October of 1902. He was at the University of Chicago. Um, and he gave a speech to the NEA, the National Education Association, uh, at a conference there in Chicago about the importance of, of education being at the social center of a community. Um, I, I think it was a significant and compelling talk, and I think it was as relevant to the challenges of today as it was in 02. And he, this is the quote. Um, he said the pressing thing, the, the significant thing, is to really make education uh, as a social center that is a matter of practice, not theory, to bring it completely into the current of social life. And he ended it by saying, and this was key, um, that the conception of the school at the center of community is born of our entire democratic movement. And he, he goes on to conclude his speech by saying, democracy must begin at home, and its home is the neighborly community. In other words, Bill, he says that democracy's home is community and education is the front door. Without strong communities, our nation, we think, is really built on a house of cards. Education is a key stakeholder and specific to community colleges, um, strengthening the communities of America. Access to a college degree provides a pathway and uh, to a better life for students and their families. And that's been significant uh, for public higher ed since its inception. And communities of this nation are just as dependent on those colleges to provide the engaged and educated citizenry as they are uh, the workforce they need for a sustainable future. So as go the community colleges, certainly true of Greenfield, as go uh, GCC, so goes that community. Uh, so goes the Commonwealth, so, and so goes our nation. So uh, we believe strongly that the, the purpose and role of those community colleges is not only to serve students, but the communities uh, that they're so um, inexorably tied to. Bob Pura, there's an interesting, I think, and many interesting uh, statement in your book, and it's this. You won't find many community colleges in affluent communities. And I think that speaks to the importance and part of the role of community colleges and the five million persons who are enrolled this year in community colleges. I'd like to know more from your perspective as a president of a, uh, one of the most distinguished community colleges, uh, I think, Greenfield Community College, uh, what, what the role is of the community college. Are we talking about people uh, receiving job training, vocational uh, training, uh, uh, preparation for a four-year degree and beyond. What's your view of what, who the students are and what they have come to a community college for? So uh, let me share with you a comment that a colleague made um, um, at, at GCC once. He said um, uh, that if Williams College or Amherst College, both about 20, 25 minutes away from, from GCC, were to close, each of those students at Williams or Amherst would find a place to go. You know, they would go to Bowdoin or they'd go to, to – they'd find somewhere else to go. But if GCC or any of the community colleges of our nation are to close, uh, where would those students go? And I think that question that, that this person asked um, is really a statement about – um, placing community colleges at the, within the communities of most need. And I think um, if you were to remove those community colleges, those students would have no point of access. Uh, for, for so many, you're homebound and placebound. They're, they're working. They're taking care of kids. They're taking care of parents. Uh, they can't afford to go off to a four-year institution and stay in their dorm or rent. So, so they're in the middle of night life, not just preparing for it. And um, so uh, the, the, the point of opportunity uh, that is so significant to our democracy then becomes a barrier. 
and uh, to um, to think about opening the doors of education to all who aspire to a better life is core to what those community colleges uh, of this nation are doing every single day. And yes, um, many go uh, looking for the, the for a job, the, whether it's nursing or law enforcement. Uh, most of the first responders of our nation uh, walk through the doors of community colleges, nurses, um, the, the, the EMT program uh, at, at GCC is, is so important uh, to, to those folks up in the, the northern part of the valley. And um, if you were to look at Franklin or Cooley and those hospitals, you'd see a majority of those nurses walk through the doors of the community colleges. So the first responders, in fact, the first woman uh, police chief in, in uh, Northampton's history, uh, is the GCC alum, and um, uh, not only are they looking for jobs, but they could be looking to transfer. And so uh, they're off to UMass Amherst, they're off to uh, Smith. Uh, GCC transferred more women to Smith than any other community college in the nation. But that's the story across the nation. When students are looking or aspire to the four-year degree, they get their start at the uh, local community college. But it's also, um, I think core to the value of the community college to work with local business and industry and healthcare to provide the, um, the uh, educated workforce needed because that sustains the communities that they live in and serve. So opening their doors to education and opening their doors to community need is core to their uh, mission uh, and it's the work they do every day. So many uh, faculty uh, at, at community colleges are, are passionately motivated by their um, uh, commitment to social and economic justice. And I, I felt it important, and part of the reason I wrote this book, uh, and asked Tara, uh, Dr. Tara Parker, the, the dean of uh, the College of Education at UMass Boston, and uh, one of the reasons you wrote their book is to tell their story tell the story of, of their students and to tell the story of the faculty and staff who uh, and uh, so nobly walk through those doors committed to uh, the core principles of our, of our nation's democracy. I'd also note that the foreword to the book is written by Lynn Pascarella, former president of Mount Holyoke College and now president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities in Washington, D.C., also a community college graduate. I'd like to ask you, you mentioned Jody Casper here in Northampton, the police chief. Your book is not simply a discussion of community college. In fact, you tell stories, not only mm -hmm. your story, but stories of individuals who have been, uh, been, been uh, to and have graduated from community colleges. One of those stories is Jody Casper, the police chief here in Northampton. There are others that are really moving, and I'm, I'm not asking you to uh, to tell us them all, but I'd appreciate if you would give us a sampling of those stories which you tell in this book, because they are really moving. Well, thank you uh, for that comment. Um, they are really moving, and uh, uh, they were moving to, to, uh, to write them. Um, uh, the ones at the beginning of the book talk about students that, that I knew firsthand at GCC, but we also tell the stories of students and faculty and staff across the country. I had the uh, privilege of visiting five colleges for the book, um, uh, one at Connor State in the middle of Oklahoma, about an hour and a half outside of Tulsa, and the incredible and important role they play uh, for that most rural uh, community, Warner, uh, Oklahoma, but also Ostis Community College in the South Bronx. Let, let me tell you a story there. Um, uh, so uh, I was talking to the, the president there, and um, uh, he said, let me tell you a story. Uh, he, he said, uh, um, so many of our, of our students are, are single moms uh, in our nursing program. And he, he said, I want to tell you the story of one such mom. And uh, her, her, um, she was a Puerto Rican living in the South Bronx. Uh, she was born in Puerto Rico, uh, single mom had a daughter. Uh, they were living uh, not far from Ostas Community College. She wanted to become a nurse, not only for economic reasons, but also to teach her daughter about the importance of education. Her last name was Swift Mayer. 
uh, which is not an uncommon name in, in the Bronx uh, uh, of Puerto Rican descent. And um, uh, so she graduated from the nursing program, got a job. Um, and um, he then goes on to tell the story about how uh, he had invited local elementary school students uh, into the college to talk about the importance of education. And he had the Chief Justice Sotomayor as a guest, and she walked on the stage and uh, he's, he was talking about uh, Ostas as a magical place. And the first thing she said is, yes, uh, Ostas is a magical place. It was magical for my mom, who was a nursing student here. So that student, that single mom nursing student uh, at Ostas Community College was uh, Chief Justice Sotomayor's mother. Uh, and uh, her desire to get a good job at good wages, family-sustaining wages, was amplified by her modeling for her daughter uh, the importance of education. So uh, not only did that college provide an opportunity for the student to get a good job, but also it, it, it opened the doors for the possibility of a, of a chief justice. Um, also had the opportunity to go to Grand Rapids, uh, where I heard of um, uh, one particular story of, of a student who was a, a um, um, uh, migrant uh, came uh, to to work in in uh, Michigan. Um, she uh, saw her parents all the time helping uh, people who were also migrants to um, uh, learn how to fill out paperwork. Um, she never thought college was in uh, her future, but a, a friend talked her parents into letting her go. She went to Grand Rapids Community College. Um, and, and she eventually became um, a faculty member there. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to Diné, uh, which for me was, I, I think, the most moving experience I've had on a community college campus. Diné is the first uh, Native American college, the first tribal college in the country. Um, and um, uh, story after story about the importance of uh, Bene, which also in the Navajo language means the people. So it's the people's college. And that was one of the core themes that we, we found throughout the book uh, and all of our visits. Um, that I, I remember back at GCC, the discussion of doing this work by us, for us. It was an aspirational journey um, that was built on some philosophy and core values, not a a uh, journey of compliance because some state uh, regulation demanded it. Yeah, Bob, so, let me inter- let me interrupt because we do need yeah. to squeeze in a break. Uh, let me yes. tell our listeners who were just joining us that we were speaking with Bob Pura. His new book is The Community's College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. He'll be at the Parlor Room for a book reading, signing, and discussion 2 o'clock on Saturday, 2 o'clock this Saturday at the Parlor Room in Northampton. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about open enrollment. I want to talk what the students have done. I want to talk about the enormous success and importance of community colleges here in our community. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, 
Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. I'm going down to the corner store. Sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Bob Pura, the longtime, now former president of Greenfield Community College, whose new book is The Pursuit is the Community's College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. He will be at the Parlor Room Saturday at two o'clock for a book reading, signing, and discussion, free and open to the public. Of course, if you have are inclined to sign up at the International Language Institute, that would be great, but you can just come and hear Bob talk and have a really fascinating discussion, I think. I'd like to ask you a few community college questions, if I might. Sure, Uh, please. There's open enrollment at community colleges. Anyone can go. And I think it brings up the question, well, what about standards. Um, Who enforces the standards? And how do we know that there's a quality education that goes on in community colleges, given that, well, anyone can go? Yes, that's an excellent question. And you you point out the fact that uh, if you were to apply to a private uh, elite college, they sift through applications and maybe take the the top two or three or five percent of any graduating class, the other 95 percent are those that walk through the doors of community colleges. With regard to standards, all of the community colleges of New England are all accredited by uh, the New England Association, of which I had the honor and privilege of serving uh, uh, two terms as a commissioner. And those are the same standards uh, that are held for all of higher education. So an English 101 course at Harvard or uh, at Mount Holyoke are, are the same standards by which the, the English 101 course at Greenfield Community College or Holyoke Community College are held to with an appreciation and an understanding of mission, uh, but the standard is the same. And that aspirational journey is held tight by that accrediting body, or else they don't get accredited? It's a great question. Uh, and GCC's um, um, uh, metrics suggest that um, students who transfer to Smith or Amherst or uh, any other college uh, are, do as well, if not better, uh, than the students that start at that institution. Uh, they, the GCC has some of the highest uh, graduation rates and retention rates in the state consistently over the years. So the quality of the education um, is not uh, reflective of the cost of education. In fact, one of the things I was most proud of in my time there is that I think we were offering a $70,000 a year education for less than $7,000 a year. And I think um, um, uh, the the data uh, bore the truth of that out. One fact that I learned in your book was about the average age of community college students, which is considerably older 
than, well, the 18-year-olds who are going to most colleges. What difference does that make in terms of composition, and what difference does it make to the educational experience? Uh, It's it's, uh, significant to the community college experience. I think the average age uh, is 27 now nationally, um, but any community college might be somewhere between 26 and 28. Um, uh, These students are in the middle of middle of life and not just preparing for it. Uh, they're uh, adults, as the song just played to. Uh, they're adults uh, in every de- sense and definition of the term, uh, whether they're 18 or 28 or 40 or 60. Uh, they're adults looking uh, for opportunity uh, and aspire to a better life. Hey, one thing, let me, let, me interrupt for, let me interrupt for a second, because one yes. thing that strikes me is that students are at community colleges because they want to be there, because they want to learn, because they want the education, because they want to achieve that degree. They're not there because their parents said, you know, this is next on your life journey, go to college. It's different. And I wonder what your reflections yeah. are on that. Well, I love, I love that you know so much about community college, and I love that you read this book before, before this interview. That's a unique opportunity for, for me. But um, I think what you bring up is very important in in a couple of respects. Yes, they want to be there, and so their investment and their time there is um, meaningful to them. But it's also, because of their price point, an opportunity for them to explore what they want to do in life. And so many students who go off to a four-year institution, 18 or 19, you know, who at 18 or 19 want to know clearly what they want to do for the rest of their lives? And so it's an evolving uh, um, destination of where they're headed. And so uh, they have the opportunity to explore at a community college to, to make a change. When you are paying sixty dollars or $70,000 a year, so many of those students uh, either are uh, concerned for the cost and so they don't want to make a change and uh, they're afraid to, uh, to tell their parents they want to make a change or they can't afford to make a change. Where at a community college, you could say, well, I want to try this, I want to try that. Uh, I, most of the students do well at those transfer institutions because they know what they want to do and because they have the opportunity to explore and get clear about, you know, once you find out what you want to do in life, it's not about work, it's about exciting day-to-day activity. Once you know you want to be a police chief or you want to be an officer, you want to be a nurse or you want to be a doctor or an engineer or you love the sciences, then it, all, the, all the pieces start clicking into place. Just like when you found out you wanted to be a lawyer and you were committed to, to civil liberties, um, it, it became not a chore for you, but a passion, a, a joy, a part of the love of your life. All true. Bob, we just have a minute or two left. I, I would like you to uh, conclude. Maybe you want to tell us one more story. And I should point out to our listeners, the book is not didactic. This is a book about stories, about Bob's story, about other stories of persons at community colleges. They are all inspiring and fascinating as well. I would like to know why you use the term in your book, the community college movement. Why movement? Uh, so uh, from its inception, um, uh, most point to the Truman Commission uh, in 47, uh, but there's also some John Dewey philosophy, Jane Addams philosophy uh, that started back in 1902, but, but it is about a calling more so than the study of a field. The, the community college faculty at GCC that I met, uh, they're great artists, great scientists, mathematicians, writers, poets, nurses, uh, but they love their students and teaching they see themselves as educators more than uh, artists. Uh, and so uh, the calling to something larger than themselves uh, is, is part of that movement. And it started back in 47 when Truman asked a group of people, bipartisan, to come together and talk about what do we need to strengthen our democracy in this country and what do we need to open the doors of education. And the community college was founded. And it was, it was a, a, more of a calling Uh, than it was um, uh, uh, a vocation. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Bob Pura. His new book is The Community's College, The Community's College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. He will be at the Parra Room this Saturday at 2 o'clock. 
for a book reading and signing and Q&A and discussion as well. The book, again, is The Community's College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. It is a really interesting read. Bob Pura, thank you so much for being with us, and thanks so much for the book. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate you reading it, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it with the community. And we'll be right back with The Reverend and the Rabbi. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst Town Council is seeking support from Senator Joe Comerford and Rep. Mindy Dom to impose a 2% transfer fee on certain residential properties. The money generated from these real estate fees would be used to support affordable housing and the Capital Stabilization Fund. The town council is proposing a broad special act be adopted by legislators that would then be implemented by a local bylaw. Council member Anna Devlin Gothier said under the initial proposal, the first $250,000 generated through such a fee would go to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund with the remainder to other town accounts. A special city council meeting was held in Greenfield last night, nearly a week after the city's police department proposed cuts to patrols in order to accommodate budget cuts. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergardner proposed an alternate plan, saying the agreement struck with the police collective bargaining units changes staffing for patrol sergeants and patrol officers to two 10-hour shifts, four days on and four days off. From 3 a.m. to 7 a.m., there will be no coverage from the Greenfield Police Department. State police will cover 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. as needed. Weta Gardner said that under the plan, the Greenfield police have agreed to waive certain union rights around overtime and shift bidding. She adds that officers will be compensated for the inconvenience of the changes to their work hours. A pickleball facility could be coming to Hatfield. The select board agreed to forward a rezoning request to the planning board for the facility at 121 West Street. About two acres of the 31-acre site would be for the four-season pickleball facility. Becoming partly sunny today, still has a chance for a sprinkle or a flurry. Our high temperature will come late morning with a high in the low 40s. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 20 to 26. Mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 34 to 38. Sun cloud mix and dry on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los funcionarios de salud de Estados Unidos quieren que las vacunas contra el COVID-19 se parezcan más a la vacuna anual contra la gripe. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos propuso el lunes un enfoque simplificado para futuros esfuerzos de vacunación, lo que permite que la mayoría de los adultos y niños reciban una vacuna una vez al año para protegerse contra el virus mutante. Esto significa que los estadounidenses ya no tendrán que hacer un seguimiento de cuántas vacunas han recibido o cuántos meses han pasado desde su último refuerzo. La propuesta surge cuando las vacunas de refuerzo se han vuelto difíciles de vender. Si bien más del 80% de la población de Estados Unidos ha recibido al menos una dosis de vacuna, solo el 16% de los elegibles han recibido los últimos refuerzos autorizados en agosto. La FDA le pedirá a su panel de expertos externos en vacunas que participen en una reunión el jueves. Se espera que la agencia tenga en cuenta sus consejos al decidir los futuros requisitos de vacunas para los fabricantes. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden persuadió a los demócratas en el Congreso para que proporcionaran cientos de miles de millones de dólares para combatir el cambio climático. Ahora viene otra tarea formidable, atraer a los estadounidenses para que compren millones de autos eléctricos, bombas de calor, paneles solares y electrodomésticos más eficientes. Pero también significa que la batalla de la administración contra el calentamiento global se librará un hogar a la vez. Biden reconoció el obstáculo durante una reunión reciente del gabinete cuando habló sobre los incentivos que estarán disponibles este año. Las encuestas muestran que si bien los estadounidenses apoyan las acciones para frenar el cambio climático, en general desconocen la ley de reducción de la inflación, la legislación masiva que incluye incentivos financieros para reducir las emisiones y son escépticos sobre su propio papel en la crisis climática. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment, and our Reverend today is the Reverend Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. I really want to talk to the 
this pastor about reparations, which I know is a matter of significant interest to her and, of course, was the topic for an extraordinarily well-attended uh, meeting, seminar this week about reparations in Northampton. Why reparations? Why Northampton? Why now? Uh, just before we get to that, if I might, uh, uh, Pastor Carol Bull, um, you are the pastor at the United Church of Where? United, where, what does that indicate? Yeah, it was the uniting of the United Methodist Church in Ware and the Congregational Church in Ware. And, uh, you know, the 60s, I think they came together. They didn't have enough, the United Methodists didn't have enough members to go it alone. They joined together, and now we're the United Church of Ware. So and, we have two and, denominations. And philosophically, I take it that those denominations were close, otherwise this marriage wouldn't have worked. Uh, yeah, they are they are close, and particularly in the Northeast, they're close. Uh, uh, other parts of the country, uh, specifically on LGBTQIA plus issues, the Methodists, you know, some there there's some changes that have been afoot in that denomination regarding that. But in the Northeast, they've stood up very strongly for LGBTQIA rights, and so that's a wonderful thing in our area. Let's talk about reparations, and I know you've given a sermon on. I know this is an uh, issue near and dear to your heart. Uh, what have you shared with your congregation about reparations? And then I want to ask you about what do you, inspiration do you receive with regard to reparations from the Bible? But let's yeah. start. So let's start with what you share with your congregation. All right, we're, I think we're on the same page. Uh, so um, let's see. I'm going to sort of tell the origin of this in a minute. But um, if we, if you have read some of Frederick Douglass's uh, his Fourth of July piece actually is just phenomenal. If you have, if people haven't read that, they should just Google it and read it and read it and read it. It's amazing. I read it every but, 4th of July. Yeah, it's just beautiful. So 170 years ago, he told us, and I'm changing his language. He didn't use the word racism. He used the word slavery. But what he said that I think is very powerful for faith communities is the following. There is no power out of the church that could sustain racism an hour if it were not sustained in the church. I'm just gonna repeat that. There's no power out of the church that could sustain racism an hour if it were not sustained in the church. So that's, you know, that's a kind of amazing, you could write volumes on that one statement, but I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna tell you how how I and how our congregations are getting there. So I was in um, discernment for ordination uh, at Haydenville Congregational Church for a number of years. And um, uh, to the, the previous pastor was an African-American man named Pastor Don Morgan. And um, a group of us spent 30 weeks on Zoom uh, learning the history of slavery in America another eight weeks on the history of Asian Americans. And then we read Isabel Wilkerson's amazing book, Cast, and talked about that. So we would watch a segment of a course on the history of slavery for half an hour. Then frankly, we would all sit there dumbfounded and overcome because we had never been taught the history of slavery in any of our school situations, very little. Um, so that was an amazing consciousness raising process and beautiful education between me and the other congregants who were in that in that educational process. Um, so it liberated us from, I think, our sense that we had already known what the legacy of slavery had imprinted upon people of color in this country. And we learned much, much more. And that was different. Uh, in significant ways from your pastoral training? Uh, ab absolutely difficult. So although, I, I mean, I was fortunate, I got a fellowship at Harvard Divinity School for urban ministers and not people in the nonprofit realm. I was working at Pine Street Inn at the time. And then uh, I went to Hartford, uh, which is now has a new name. It was called Harvard, uh, Hartford Seminary before. And that is a very diverse setting. Half of the students in every class are Muslim. And the, uh, the teachers are all very diverse. So I was fortunate to be in those settings. Uh, and yet the history of racism wasn't exactly a topic. You know what I mean? Like it probably should be. Okay, so where does this 
leave you? And I would like to know what you've told your congregation about this. Where does yeah. this leave you so, personally in terms of reparations, both in terms of a societal issue and a community issue, but also in terms of your your religious perspective? Right. Yeah. So um, first of all, I want to. I'm just going to quote from some amazing people, so that we have the Reverend Dr. Uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, a Dean of Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. She says, in faith communities. Reparations must begin with truth-telling, which is at once a memorial sacrifice. This is important to Christians. Its origins are in Jesus's words, do this in memory of me. So utilizing reparations, Reverend Douglas says, is not a passive process, but one in which Christians enter into the sacrifice. It is about being accountable to the past in the very present. And further, she says, truth-telling confronts the ways in which the past remains alive in the present, thus paving the way to write the present by exonerating it from contemporary vestiges of the past. Well, let me ask you this, because there's going to be a commission set up in Northampton, I believe. I believe city council is going to pass the proposal that's going to be in front of them uh, in February, to n not to create a reparations program, but to create a commission to study the need, the appropriateness of, of uh, reparations here in Northampton. Where do, do you come out in terms of the biblical teachings uh, with regard to reparations? Yeah. Yeah, so I am going to borrow now from my mentor and friend, Reverend Andrea Vazian. Um, she was in the Why Reparations Now Zoom that was held on Tuesday of this week, put on by the Northampton Reparations Committee with Forbes Library. I, was, uh, I read about that it was happening the very moment it was happening, so I jumped on to that beautiful experience. Um, and the biblical, so Andrea has set forth some of the biblical uh, pieces here that I don't think she got to share the other day, but I'm just going to grab, yeah, here it is. Okay. Um, so the biblical, so there's lots of quotes in the Bible we can, we can connect. And certainly in Deuteronomy, uh, when thou send him out free, do not let him go away empty. This is of any stranger, of any visitor that you have. Um, in Ezra 6, King Cyrus made reparations to the elders of the Jews exiled in Babylon back in Jerusalem. To the individuals he made reparations and to the temple. Um, and in Luke, Jesus meets Zacchaeus. Uh, he says, half my possessions I give to the poor, and if I defraud anyone, I, pay, I repay four times as much. So those are the ones I don't think she got to speak the other night, but she's given me permission to say her name and, and what she did there. Um, there's others. I'm not going to go into those now. Um, so let me ask I, you, do you yes. is, is reparations, uh, in, in your view, a biblical injunction, something we are uh, required to do, that God says we are supposed to do? Uh, I, yeah, I would say yes. I mean, this is, this is about how people interpret the scripture, of course, because we're reinterpreting and the UCC says God is still, still speaking. You know, God didn't just speak once, but God is still speaking to us. We need to look at the modern world and how what's going on in it and then interpret the scriptures based on that. So yes, I would say it's, it, it is, in a way, an injunction. Um, and let me just see one more thing I wanted to share. And this is actually from, from one of my sermons that I've given. Is um, I love this. This is Ty Jones in the Washington Post, January 2020. Slavery reparations seem impossible, period. In many places, they're already happening. Um, so he talks, for instance, about the 2015 decision by the city of Chicago that covered hundreds of African Americans tortured by police for two decades beginning in 1970. 
the law calls for a variety of things, $5.5 million in financial compensation, hundreds of thousands more for a public memorial, a place where people can go and learn and weigh in and think about that, the, those topics, and assistance also related to health, education, and emotional well-being. Um, so those are some of the pieces. Um, and just going back, this, this is what Reverend Andre has, has allowed me to talk about today. She, in these, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates in his famous essay, 2014, the K in the Atlantic Magazine, The Case for Reparations. You know, we've had 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, and 35 years of racist housing policy. And he says, until we reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole. We're speaking with Pastor Carol Bull, the pastor at the United Church of Ware. We'll continue this conversation right after these quick messages. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Who's on your list of favorite duos? Thelma and Louise, Batman and Robin, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Fred and Ginger, Here's a suggestion, Bill and Buzz. Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, lawyers who together have represented people on death row and at Guantanamo Bay, are now teaming up for Talk the Talk on WHMP. Talk the Talk, Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, weekdays at 9 and again at 4. Starting next Monday on WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Come on over to the co-op, the Green Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for federal food assistance? They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Reverend and the Rabbi segment with Pastor Carol Bull, pastor at the United Church of Ware. We continued our conversation during the break, and maybe so much to talk about, and we will in future shows as well. We're talking about reparations, and in particular, you mentioned what reparations are, but we're not going to get to all the possibilities today, but what reparations aren't? So perhaps you could comment on that. Yeah, and this is, I'm quoting right from Andrea's comments. I, I'm not sure she got to this the other night, but, may, but I think she did. Um, 
reparations is not charity. Uh, charity is giving of one's excess. The giving often comes with strings attached. The, the giver chooses where and how much to give. And the giving can ebb and flow based on decisions made by the giver. Secondly, reparations is not solely an apology. Although apology should be a significant part of the process, reparations must go much further. Thirdly, reparations is not about asking forgiveness. White people may or may not be forgiven. Seeking forgiveness centers white people in the discussion and is an inappropriate expectation or request. Lastly, number four, reparations are not about assigning individual guilt. Reparations instead are about collective responsibility and common citizenship, citizenship in this country. As citizens, we all commit to understanding our history and paying a debt that is owed. So we just have a little over a minute left. Do you have personally have a uh, policy or a position with regard to what reparations should look like, what they are? Yeah, so there's, there's really, it really is contextual reparations. So each city right now or each state or whatever is, that's doing this, involved with this, are coming up with uh, talking with the people of color in those communities around what is meaningful to them, what would be meaningful to them. And as opposed to the white people coming up with, well, we're going to give you this because we think that's what you want. So it's much more related. Um, there, so there's a, it, it really depends on the context. And you see this as a process? I mean, it's a process to undergo, not a destination to get to? That's right. And it's a process of opening the heart and, um, and opening the heart and learning, learning, learning from other people. That's the best thing. And will you continue to preach on this at your congregation? Uh I will, yeah, and it's made me even more interested in preaching on this. And I think the, the work of this Northampton Reparations Committee is just fabulous. We're so lucky that they've done all the work, a lot of the work. And Amherst, too. We're yeah. going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Pastor Kyle Bull, the pastor, the Reverend at the United Church of Ware, who is with us as a regular here on The Reverend and the Rabbi. We really appreciate your being with us every month. Thanks so much, Pastor Carol Bull. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services Live help companion animals and, and the people for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's